as I was preparing my lesson this morning, um, my wife asked me, um, oh, it's weird that this year you don't have a series for your sermon topics. Um, and again, the response I gave to her is what I say at the start of uh, my sermons that I've given this year, which is, I guess, um, unintentionally, my sermon topics or titles are things that I wanted to hear myself or lessons that I needed to learn for myself um, this, uh, you know, in, in this current phase um, of life. And um, we live in a growing society of... Um, where people turn against Christianity and where Christianity is no longer the um, majority um, religion and where people are falling um, away from what they call um, themselves as. Um, and um, the title for this morning, here we go, thank you, right on cue, um, is Christianity in an Unchristian World. And uh, thank you to Brother Nisa who has read our scripture reading for this morning. But it's well known, right, that in the world at large, in, especially in our developing countries, that Christianity um, in and of itself is declining in society. So I'm going to pull up uh, some information. Um, I'm sure those that have paid attention to my sermons know that I like a little bit of data um, to start off my lessons. But we can see this title. Um, again, I take a lot of my information from this uh, organisation called the Pew Research Centre. Um, and they're an organisation based in the US that looks at Christianity, religion, um, in society as well. And what they've done was they've taken this study and um, they did a poll um, of people um, based in the US. And this is one of the graphs that they came up with. They said US Christians projected to fall below 50% of population if recent trends continue. And the next line says US Christians projected to fall below 50% of population if recent trends continue. And this is the percentage of Americans who are Christians. And we can see here that the data that they've used starting off in this top left-hand corner is based in 1972, where 90% of the US population would identify themselves as Christian. And you can see that the sharp decline that that has had simply um, within the next uh, 50 years that passed, dropped down to 64% in 2020. And what they've done was they've projected several different scenarios as to the declining rates here. I'm just going to quickly read these out. They've, they've um, estimated that by 2070, um, different scenarios based on what, if, what has happened on here on the right. So if you want to read um, the top bit says, um, no switching. So this is this top uh, grey line here, where they said this, this scenario imagines no person in America has changed or will change their religion after 2020. So this is simply the natural progression of um, the ageing population of people um, dying, new people being born, um, but the rate of religion doesn't change at all. And we can see that they project that it will drop by uh, 10% in the next 50 years. But then you can see different other scenarios that they've written here. The next one says steady switching. Movement into and out of Christianity remains stable at recent observed rates. That is, in each new generation, 31% of Christians become religiously unaffiliated before they turn 30, and 21% of unaffiliated people become Christians. So they say that more people are switching out of Christianity, but there are some people that are coming into Christianity, and this is this next uh, rate here. And if you go all the way to the bottom, this 35% uh, without limits. They say that in each new generation, a growing share of Christians switch out before they turn 30, while a shrinking share of nuns, uh, or this is no religion, people with no religion switch in, and that there is no limit is imposed on the switching rates. So this again shows that if we continue at current rates, that the projection of Christianity, again, this is US data, switches, uh, drops from 64% to 35% uh, over the next 50 years. 
And you might say, well, this is based abroad in the US, but we can see similar data showing in Australia here. So this is taken from the Bureau of Statistics from the census in 2021. Um, and again, you can see a very similar graph that has occurred. You can see that the rate of Christianity here has been dropping at a steady rate over these past 50 years. And the rate of people that identify as non-religious or no religious, again, has this exponential growth, particularly within these last 20 years. And I guess there are many attributes or many reasons for this that you could argue. I guess one thing is that people are simply just saying that they are not that they are no longer Christians because their parents identified or their grandparents identified as Christians, right? People are coming to realise that just because the religion of my parents or, or um, grandparents was Christian, Catholic, um, other denominations, that they are simply not just going to call themselves that. And there is another rate. But obviously, we do know that in the world, Christianity at large is declining. That we are becoming a more and more unchristian world today. And this is another um, poll taken from a um, separate organisation um, published in uh, this denominational website called Christianity Today. And they looked at the rate of Christianity and other religions amongst different generations. And this next line under the title says, Gen Z Aussies are half as likely as the older generation to consider themselves Christian. And you can see here again that we look at the majority of people that identify themselves as Christian uh, in the older populations and shrinks as um as the generations uh, get younger here. And this is a quote that was taken from um, someone as I was researching um, this topic this morning. He's a denominational preacher called Josh McDowell, and he said, we no longer live in a post-Christian society. We, we live in an anti-Christian society, one in which the Christian faith is dismissed or ridiculed, and Christians are considered suspect and their motives and behaviour berated. And I think this is becoming more and more apparent, particularly within these last few years. And I'm sure everyone has had experience or have seen things online or have spoken to people that have had similar experiences. But we live in a world that is becoming more and more anti-Christian. And I guess the hard thing for us today in the church is how do we remain firm as Christians? How do we continue on in our Christianity in a growingly unchristian world? And this is the lesson that I want to talk about this morning. And we're going to be looking at the lessons from Noah because I thought, well, when have we read in biblical history of a similar situation happening? When have we learnt or felt or understood this happening um, in the past? And I think for a lot of people today, um, that grow up in the church, I feel like maybe more scared or be maybe more worried about where the future is heading, right? To be living in a world where people are no longer calling themselves Christians, but actually are attacking Christianity and the beliefs that we all hold. Um, and it can be worrying. It can be scary to feel like you are growing up in a society like this. But this isn't something new, right? Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes that there is nothing new under the sun. We have gone through this in the past. We have gone through, we're going through this now, but this isn't something that is new to us in our current generation. This is something that is been going on for a long time and has happened in the past. So let's look at how other people have gone through these similar situations and how um, they overcame these situations as well. So we're going to start by looking at some context. If you all like, we're going to spend a lot of time in Genesis uh, this morning. So if you want to keep your Bibles or your phone apps uh, open to there, we're going to be spending quite a lot of time there um, to start with. But we're going to start off in uh, Genesis chapter 5. Um, and we know that uh, in the four chapters prior to this, in Genesis chapters 1 to 4, the story of creation and Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel um, 
has occupied a large portion of these first few chapters of the Bible. And when we hit Genesis chapter 5, we reach a turning point. And we can see that uh, Genesis chapter 5 verse 1 starts by saying, This is the book of, gen- of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image and named him Seth. Then the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. And then at this point in time, we can see that all of these uh, men are then named, right? We've spent four chapters looking at really Adam, Eve, Cain and Abel. Um, And Seth has been mentioned at the end of chapter four, but we've spent four chapters really looking at four main characters um, largely in um, the book of Genesis, right? And then we hit chapter five and suddenly a whole bunch of names are then listed out, right? If you read through chapter five, which we're not gonna do for the sake of time this morning, but it simply just names man after man after man as is demonstrated here in this graph um, and just names them, how long they lived uh, and what was the names of the, of the next um, child that they had that carried on um, the lineage there. And we can see here that, you know, we do know that these people lived for long periods of time. And again, that's a separate topic for where we're headed this morning. But we come to the very end of uh, Genesis chapter 5 and verse 32. And it reads, um, Noah was 500 years old and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham and Japheth. And we can see here that after this transition point in Genesis chapter 5, we hit a um, point of another focus. We focused on... uh, Adam and Eve, we focused on Cain and Abel, and now we're going to look at Noah, right, at the end of Genesis chapter 5. But it's interesting to note, right, that as we are reaching this point in time, we've talked about a change or a move of 1,000 years, right, from when Noah was... um, was born to when uh, we start the genealogy, we can see that a thousand years has passed, right? So let's keep that in mind, right? That 1,000 years has passed from uh, the time of Adam to when we are now in, uh, in Noah. And let's start off by reading some context that we can find in Genesis chapter six. So moving on to Genesis chapter six, reading from verses one to seven. It reads, now it came about when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Verse four, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. So we can see that we spent chapter five looking at this span of a thousand years, briefly in a few lines, um, talking about, you know, so-and-so begot so-and-so, um, and we finally hit a point a thousand years later um, before we introduce uh, Noah again. So we've, we've read about um, his introduction in Genesis 5.32, and then Genesis chapter six, verses one to seven, uh, doesn't mention Noah at all in these first few verses, but really the writer here is giving some context of the situation of the land at this time. And we can see in verses one to four that 
man chooses to do what they wish. That these um, people, you know, a thousand years later, it was a very different time than when God was speaking to Adam and Eve directly. That in these thousand years that have passed, that it says in verse 1, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. That they were choosing to follow after these um, these foreign people and these people were not uh, following after God, right? That they were choosing to do evil and wickedness as we can read in the next few verses. But it's interesting to note that after we read these first two verses, if you look at God's initial response in verse three, this is the first interaction that we see of God responding to the situation that was at hand. And in verse three, it says, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. So after reading about so-and-so having lived for 900 years, 800 years, um, lot, you know, a long, long time that these men prior to Noah were living, that we can see that God has said, you know, my spirit shall not be with man forever. And if you look at the word strive, right, the Hebrew word, it can be translated as contend or plead. This idea that God was reaching a point where he was saying that, you know, my time where I've, you know, where I interact with these people and the patience, I guess you could say, that God was having, he was no longer going to work for, contend, to plead for these people. Because he says, because they are also flesh. And God's reaction and response to that is that he was going to, he says, um, his days shall be 120 years. And we know that this isn't an exact number. Um, this is, you know, arguably more of a figurative um, number. But God was going to limit uh, the time that, that man had on earth more so than what was done in the past. And then if you read um, ongoing, right, um, in verse 5, God again says, the Lord saw that um, the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God was able to look at man on earth and he, and he was uh, able to see that the intent of their heart, as it says here, the intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That people in this world, people at this time, were only focused on doing evil and wicked things. These people had no intention of following God um, and he knew that because of this, right, because of the way that they felt and the beliefs that they had in verse 6, it says, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. That there was, God had sorrow for creating man. He saw the state that man was in and he felt sorrow for what um, was being, what was happening on earth at this time. And not only was God sorrowful, but God was going to take action on this. In verse 7, we can see that God, not only was he sorry, he says, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of of the land from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky for I am sorry that I have made them. So not only was God sorrowful for the creation that he had but he was going to do something about it. He was going to erase mankind from the face of the earth. And if you're reading up until this point right it's a pretty grim uh, story so far right. If you don't know what's going to happen I mean we all do know what's going to happen but if you were reading this for the first time you'd probably think this is a pretty bleak situation that man is in right. That all of this um, that God had created he was just going to destroy because of the wickedness that was there on earth. But we can see that it goes a little bit beyond that. And in verse 8, it says, but Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. And then it continues on from there. The story of Noah starts to unfold. And so 
this, for the sake of this morning, we're not going to look and necessarily examine the entire life um, of Noah. For we all, I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, know the story of Noah, a very um, well-known biblical character. But I thought what we would do this morning is look at four characteristics that Noah had that can help us to identify and to be stronger Christians despite an ever-growing and ever-changing unchristian world that is out there. And for the sake of uh, ease of memory, I thought we would look at the four letters of Noah's name. Uh, so let's look at the letter N. Well, we can see that Noah was noble. He was a man of high moral character. He was someone that God was able to look to and turn towards and could trust that he was going to be someone uh, that um, was going to be um, in favour um, to God. And we can see this continuing on um, in verses 8 and 9 from where we just read. In verse 8, it says, But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. And then in verse 9, it says, These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, Noah walked with God. And so we can see that after having read these seven verses about the wickedness that was on uh, the earth, that the thoughts of man at this time was purely evil, that this situation was looking pretty dire at this point in time, the writer then says, Noah, this one man found favour in the eyes of the Lord. And then in verse 9, we obviously can see a zooming in of uh, the story where we read a bit more about his life that unfolds in the next few chapters here. But if you look at how the writer describes Noah in these two verses, he mentions four different characteristics that Noah has. The first thing is that it says in verse 8 that he found favour in the eyes of the Lord. And if you look at what that means in the Hebrew language, other words that can be used to translate uh, favour could be grace, acceptance, or pleasant. The idea that Noah was someone whom God was able to look at and was able to say that out of all of these wicked people in the world, that this one man was someone who I was able to accept, this one person who was able to carry grace, someone who I was able to look towards and someone who I found favour in. And a commentator um, looking at um, in response to this verse said you know as is explained in the following of the verses Noah was clearly apart from the universal corruption that otherwise engulfed the whole of humanity and if you just think about that for one moment right where you this one man in a entire world of wickedness God was able to look at this one person and say that despite whatever was happening in the world around him this this um pandemic of uh, corruption, evil, wickedness, that despite all of this that was influencing every other person on the world, that there was one man, Noah, whom God said was able to find uh, favour in his eyes. But not only that, if you continue reading in verses 9, that again, three other characteristics or qualities are mentioned about Noah. And the first thing that's mentioned in verse 9 is that Noah was a righteous man. He's someone who was just, someone who was lawful, who was someone who was correct. Um, and this was someone that understood that God had... Um, that, what, that God had instituted right and wrong, that there were things that he um, should be focusing on and that there were things that there weren't things uh, that we should be focusing on. And, it, and Noah was able to discern the difference between those two. He was just and he was lawful in that sense. The next characteristic says he was blameless in his time, right? And um, other translations use the word perfect, but if you look at, again, the Hebrew word, it can be defined as wholesome, unimpaired, complete. This idea that by no means was Noah a perfect man. Did he not make any mistakes? But he was someone, in comparison to the evil in society at that time, was someone who was whole, who was wholly complete, that he was not impaired by the things um, that were happening in the world, but he was someone who was upright um, and was able to discern between good and evil, that righteousness as well. 
And the last thing it says here is that he walked with God, right? And if you think about that, right, very few people in throughout the Bible are mentioned to be to be having such a close relationship with God, to say that they were close enough to walk with God. And if you think about that, right, there are two things that come to mind when I think about walking with God, right? Firstly, that they were close. Obviously, there had to be a um, close relationship that Noah would have had with God. That, you know, God wouldn't have been someone to say that they would have walked with him if they weren't close in the relationship that Noah had um, and in the understanding that he had of who he was and, um, and who God was as well. But I think the second thing that's also important to understand is that it also implies that they were equal in relation. That, you know, whilst not to say that Noah was, you know, in equality with God, but at the same time that we understand that Noah um, was in a similar place where he could be in a position to walk with God. And I think that's important to understand that, you know, at this point in time, this is the same God that we speak to and worship today. That is, isn't someone who is just sitting on their high throne, someone who, um, you know, just sits down, reigns from above um, and doesn't understand uh, who we are or what's the struggles that we are going through. But he was someone that is um, both in closeness um, in relationship, but also closeness, I guess you could say, in status or in understanding of the situations that were happening. Um, and we can see that because of these characteristics that Noah had, these helped him get through the situations that were about to unfold. And we can see that the result of this, you want to turn your Bibles a few chapters later to Genesis chapter 9. This is after the flood um, had subsided. And in chapter 9, Genesis chapter 9, verse 1 to 3, it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. And he goes on from there. But we can see that initially in in this phase um, that happened after the flood, that God, because of the characteristics that Noah had, gave Noah these right to say, you know, be fruitful and multiply. And not only that, but the power to be in control and have rule and dominion over all the things of the earth. And if you contrast that to where we had just read earlier on, right, we just read in um, Genesis chapter 6, verse 7, at that point in time, before we'd introduced Noah, it says, the Lord said, I will blot up man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things and to birds of the sky. So, you know, God, because of Noah, took this really 180 degree shift from wanting to destroy everything in chapter six to now saying in chapter nine that he was going to give man dominion over this. And we can see that the mindset that God had um, changed because of Noah and the, the difference that God had from wanting uh, to destroy everything that was on earth to now um, giving man, whom he was also going to destroy, now dominion and power over creation. And if you look at um, verse uh, seven, this again is... Um, re-emphasized by God, right? In verse 1, we can see that God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And in verse 7, God again re-emphasizes. He says, as for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. So Noah was given that, um, that opportunity and was given that um, I guess, pedestal uh, a role to be able to be the father of mankind, right? And again, this uh, commentator that I read um, in response to this verse, he says, there was sufficient holiness in him to make possible God's use of him as second great progenitor of mankind. That after the events that had happened with the flood, that God was able to look at Noah and say that, you know, 
you are the person that we want to embody um, to be the person that is going to repopulate um, Earth. Um, and I don't think God would have given that task to simply anyone. But we can see because of the way that Noah was described, that God was able to look at him and say, this is the person that I want to be the father of the next um, of, of mankind moving forward. So we can see that Noah was a man who was noble, who had great nobility of high moral character. But we can see that this wasn't just uh, his only characteristic, right? It wasn't just simply he held these qualities and did nothing about them. Well, not only was he noble, but Noah was obedient, right? And um, we can see that that is very closely linked with how the story of Noah unfolds, right? He wasn't just someone who believed in God, was righteous, just, fair. Um, and he wasn't just these qualities, but he also was a man of action. He was someone who was doing things, right? So let's quickly examine uh, what happened uh, as, as the story of Noah unfolds. If you want to read from Genesis chapter 6, reading from verse 13. Uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 13 reads, Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make with it the lower, you shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life. From under heaven, everything that is on the earth shall perish. Verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds and after their kind and of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible and gather it to, uh, gather it to yourself and it shall be for food for you and for them. And we can see that the way that this, uh, the writer talks about and writes about this story is very, very matter of fact, right? In verse 13, God speaks to Noah, right? And again, if you want to just place yourself in Noah's position for, for a moment. If you, if you, as we read through this story, think about if you and Noah hearing this for the first time, right? God tells you, the end has come. We're going to, I'm going to destroy everything that is on the earth, right? That all of this, all of the things that you see around you, the life that you live, the, uh, the people that you see, the, the nature, the trees, the animals that are around you, all of this is going to be destroyed, right? Okay. So you're probably thinking, okay, Sure, God, that's an interesting plan, but what, what does that have to do with me, right? And then in verse 14, God says, Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. So God tells Noah initially that you're going to build an ark. You're going to build um, a boat, right? That not only is it going to be something that you are just going to find out of nowhere, but it has to be a certain wood, right? You need to find the specific wood that you're going to make this ark out of. And not only that, but you need to waterproof it as well, because something's going to happen, right? As we obviously know that's going to happen, but it need, needs to be waterproof, right? And you're probably thinking, okay, well, sure, I can, I can do that. And then God gives you these exact measurements, right? And these are large measurements, right? We're not talking about this little, you know, boat that you can house in your backyard. We're talking about a massive boat, right? 
And you're probably thinking, okay, God, like that's, that's going to take a long time, right? It's, it's a lot of work that I'm going to have to do for all of these things, right? But okay, if that's what you ask of me, you know, I'm sure I can, you know, find a few people that can give me a hand. And then God says in verse 19 and 20, not only are you to build this massive boat, right? But you are going to need to gather two of every animal, every living thing that it says in verse 19, that all of these things we need to gather, round up, to bring onto this boat, right? And then after all of that, make sure you have enough food for yourselves and enough supplies for yourself in verse 21, right? And so again, think that you are nowhere in this position, right? God has suddenly tasked you to do a lot of things, right? That this isn't something that is just going to take, it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to something that's going to happen within a week or a month or a year. This is going to take a long time, right? And keeping in mind, we're not, we don't have the wonders of technology and construction that we have today, right? This is everything that needs to be done by hand. But then as you read the end of chapter 6, right, in verse 22, this one simple line that is written, it says, in verse 22, thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. And it's very matter of fact. It's two lines in my Bible, but it, after, after this one entire section of God telling Noah, you need to do all of these exact things for me. In verse 22, it just says that Noah did all that God asked of him, he did it. Um, and not only did he do that at this point in time, a few verses later in uh, chapter 7, verse 5, again, it says, Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him, that no matter what God asked him to do, he was going to do it. He was obedient to what God asked of him. And just to put into perspective how much of a task this was uh, for Noah, this is an exact replica of Noah's ark, right, that is in Kentucky, and is now open as an attraction for people to view, right? But this is how big God asked him to create this ark, right? 134 metres long, 22 metres wide, and 13 metres high, right? And again, just for perspective, look how, look at, uh, if you want to look at how small these cars are here, right? As perspective to how large this boat was going to be. This wasn't just a small feat that God had asked Noah to do, but he asked him to do um, this massive feat, right? And um, I, what we're going to, t to talk about moving forward is that if you were to place yourself in Noah's position, right, you're thinking, God, that's a lot of work, like, that you're asking me to do. Um, what is the purpose of this, right? I understand that, yeah, you have this master plan and you're going to, you know, wipe out what's on the earth, but um, that's a lot of work that you're asking for me. And we can see that not only was Noah noble, not only was he obedient, but he was someone that was accountable. He was someone that was reliable, someone that had, um, that was trustworthy, someone that understood what responsibility was, right? And we can read of this in different facets of his life. The first thing is we can see that Noah had personal responsibility. In Genesis chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Then the Lord said to Noah, uh, Enter the ark, you and your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. And you can imagine God saying, right, after after he had built this massive ark, right? In verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 22, right? We can see that Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. And the next verse we can read after that, after we just read that God had given him, you know, almost 10 verses worth of instructions that he needed to do, we read one verse of Noah doing it, and then in verse, uh, the next verse in chapter 7, verse 1, it says, enter the ark which you, um, you, and your you and your household, right? We don't read of any um, accounts of Noah actually physically building this ark, right? And again, think about it. This is a massive feat that's being undertaken here, right? It's not something that's just going to happen overnight. 
but we can read that the way that the writer writes this passage is that it seemed God asked Noah to do it, and simply it happened. It was done, right? And we can see that in verse uh, 1, God says to Noah that you and your household to enter this ark, um, for you I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. Because of um, the way that Noah went about this, he undertook this task that God had given him. And the result of that was God said, well, because you have been righteous before me in this time, you are to enter into this ark, right? But not only that, not only did he have this responsibility for himself that God had tasked him to do and to save himself and to follow after God's commands, but he had a familial responsibility. Um, in Genesis chapter 7, verse 7, it says, Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. And I think when you read that, for us, we're thinking, okay, well, God told him you are to go into the ark with your family, as we'd read earlier. So he did that. That's great. But again, let's step aside and keep in mind the context of the society in which uh, these people lived. First of all, the fact that Noah only had one wife, right, which at this time in society was not the norm. The fact that Noah only had one wife with him was not a norm at this point in time. And you could again argue that the Bible doesn't really, we don't know if Noah had any more children, but we know that only three of his sons and those sons' wives entered into the ark with him. So out of all of these, out of all of this world, you know, whether he did have other children or, um, or other people that weren't going into the ark with him. He had a responsibility to those that are in, immediately around him. And because of that, his family was also saved as well. But also, besides this, right, let's take another step um, aside out of, this, out of this incident for a little while. But not only did God ask him to build this massive boat for um, what was about to happen. But he asked and he had tasked Noah to tell others about what was going to happen. We know that um, Noah was a preacher and had a responsibility to preach God's word to others. We can read of that in 2 Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 5 reads, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them into pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And then obviously the passage continues on. But just focusing for the sake of this lesson in verse 5, that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, that he had a responsibility and God tasked him to not only to save yourself, not only to save of your family, but to go out into the world and tell them about what was going to happen, what was going to um, happen with the destruction of the world. And we know that Noah, you know, was largely unsuccessful in his endeavours, right? He didn't manage to save anyone else besides him and his family. But it doesn't surprise me when you, when you see the extent of the world um, that is being talked about, right? We, we had read a little bit earlier in, in Genesis 6, verses 11 to 13, it says, The earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. In verse 12, God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And then God said to Noah, um, the earth, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them um, with the earth. And so we can see that this whole land was corrupt, was violent. And Jesus himself talks about the state of uh, the world at this time in Luke chapter 17. In Luke chapter 17, verses 26 to 27, uh, read, 
And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So Jesus himself um, was understood the situation that was unfolding in Noah's time, that all of these people were so focused on the things of the world that they were not interested in what uh, was going on around them, in what Noah had to say. So much so that it says, until the day that Noah entered the ark, right? Right until this ark door was closed, um, these people were focused on themselves and their worldly um, lives. But again, what I want you to... um, imagine that, again, if you were Noah in this position, right, firstly is that there is a hundred years has passed, right, from Genesis 5 verse 32, when we read about when Noah was first introduced, it said Noah was 500 years old and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham and Japheth, that is in Genesis 5 verse 32. A couple of chapters later in Genesis chapter 7 verse 6, it says now Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. So from when we read about Noah to start with to when the flood Um, came about a hundred years had passed, right? So again, keep in mind, right? God's told you something's going to happen. Something's going to happen where I'm going to erase man out of the face of the earth. Um, And I need you to build this massive boat for me, right? So again, we read that Noah, Noah did it. But you've got to think, right? This span that's that's happened from start to finish is a hundred years before the flood came. So I want you to ask yourself some questions. What if Noah gave up believing? What if in amongst this he thought, oh, this is way too much work. I mean, um, is, this, is this ever going to happen, God? Like, are you ever going to do what you told me? Why do I need to continue preaching to these people that something's going to happen when well, I've gone 10, 20, 30, 50 years and nothing's happened, right? What if God gave up on the building? What if, what if he said, this is way too hard, you know, I've got to go find all this material and I've just got myself and, you know, maybe, maybe my family to help me. But this boat that you're asking me to build is a really big boat and this is a lot of work. What if Noah gave up on building that? What if Noah gave up on his preaching? What if halfway he said, oh, this isn't going to happen. What's the purpose of me doing this? Well, we know that the Bible doesn't really expand too much on, you know, the ins and outs and nuances of these questions. But we know that just as God commanded him, he was obedient. He did these things. He had this responsibility and was accountable for what God had commanded of him to do. That no matter this time that had passed, he understood that he had a responsibility to God to his family and to others around him. And the reason he had that, I would argue, is because he was, and the last point that we're going to cover this morning is that he was hopeful. He understood that no matter what was going to, what was happening in his lives as he was going through this, um, these situations, that he understood and had hope that God was going to be um, faithful and that God was going to deliver on what he had said. If we read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, so obviously we know that this is... Um, um, the writer of Hebrews talking about all these very faithful men and women um, in the Bible. And if you read the way that this writer describes Noah, right, in verse 7, Hebrews 11, verse 7, it says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. We can see that the writer of Hebrews emphasizes the fact that God. Um, was warning Noah about something that he had no proof was even going to happen, right? Imagine that God tells you something's going to happen. I'm going to blot out everything on the face of the earth, but you yourself don't even have any, ev- I mean, besides the fact that God was speaking to you, 
no other evidence was provided to Noah. You're probably thinking, well, there's nice blue skies, people are still living their merry lives. Why would I need to do something that I have no proof is even going to happen? But again, in verse 7, he says that he had faith. That's how he introduces uh, Noah and all these other men and women in these passages. But it says, by faith, Noah, um, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his house, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. We can see that it is because of the faith that he had combined with his obedience and the actions that he took, which is what saved him. Because if Noah had faith in who God was and in what God said, well, um, that's great. That's a great starting point. But if Noah didn't build that ark, right, I don't think God would have saved him. If Noah said, right, God, yes, I do believe, I understand what you're saying, and I do have faith that what you were saying is going to happen, um, but didn't have the obedience to build this ark, um, then I doubt that he would have been saved. And so we can see that if... Um, Noah had questioned his circumstances, right? In the circumstances that he was finding himself in, um, that faith that he had in what God was going to say um, was, would have been what would have pulled him through in these situations, right? And not only in the building of the ark, right? Not only did um, Noah build this ark and, and all, was, all was well, but, um, you know, what if Noah had questioned the circumstances that he found himself in even after this flood started happening, right? Um, for the sake of time, we won't read this. But in Genesis chapter 7, we read that, that water was on the earth for 150 days, right? If you think about that, that is a long time for water to be on the earth and for water to be around. And you're stuck on this boat and you're probably thinking, if you're Noah, is this ever going to end, right? You've promised me to build this boat. I've done that. We've saved all these animals, but there is water everywhere, right? That has been going on for the, you know, better part of, you know, a third of a year. Is this, is this ever going to end? We know that Noah then sends out these birds, right? He sends out a raven first and sends out a dove. And initially, these two birds return back with nothing. And again, you're probably thinking, well, I've done all this work. Is this ever going to end? There is no evidence that there is life on earth returning. Um, and if Noah had questioned the circumstance that he found himself in, um, it would have been very easy for him to have simply just given up on the task that he found himself in and to simply just say... This is just too hard for me. But we know that um, he had faith in ho and hope in what God was going to say and do and provide for him. So let's look at the lessons learned for this morning. And this is where we're going to wrap up uh, this morning as well. The first thing we're going to look at is Noah was noble, right? And for us, let us look at some applications. There is just uh, a couple of passages for each of these points for us to read. Um, but for us today, right, how can we be noble? How can we have this high moral standard in this world that we live in, um, in this growing unchristian world, just as Noah found himself in? Well, in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, very famous passage, reads, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Just as Noah was described as blameless, upright, um, just that we too are to be renewing our minds with God's word so that we too may be able to prove that is good, acceptable and perfect today. We need to learn to be obedient to God's word. In 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 to 3 reads, By this we know that we, love God, that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. 
Read and look at how closely the link is between loving God and keeping his commandments that is emphasised in verse 3 here. That when we do what God has asked of us, this is how we demonstrate that we love God, by being obedient to what he has asked of us. We need to be accountable and we need to have responsibility for ourselves and for our salvation, just as Noah did for himself and for those around him. In Romans chapter 14, verses 10 to 13, read... Um, by, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. That we have a responsibility for ourselves, knowing that we will pre- give an account of ourselves before God at judgment time, that we have a responsibility and we are going to be accountable for the things that we have done at judgment time. And using that as motivation, we need to remain hopeful for the things of the future. In Titus chapter 3, Uh, Titus chapter 3, verses 5 to 7 reads, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We have a hope that is out there if we choose to obey him and if we choose to follow after him. So as we conclude our lesson for this morning, we live in a growingly unchristian world, but we need to have faith that this isn't a new problem. This is something that was faced in the past, but this is something that we need to continue to remain faithful in. And we need to be encouraged and to have faith like Noah, to trust in a God that cares for and blesses his people. Just as God looked after Noah, so too will he look after us if we choose to obey him. And I'm going to end with our scripture reading for this morning, which is John 15, verses 18 to 19. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world... Because of this, the world hates you. We are in this position because we are not of the world, because we are different from the world, because we call ourselves something different than the world. And this is why we are in um, the place that we are, that despite the world turning away from God, we can have faith and reassurance that we are in a world that hates us because of this and because of who we are. So as we conclude this morning, I want you to think about yourselves and to think about your relationship and where you are with God. And if you are someone that doesn't know what it means to have a relationship with God, what it, and you don't understand what it means to be a Christian, or you want to learn more about what this means, you know, we would be more than happy to discuss this further with you um, after this. Or if you are someone um, who has been struggling with your relationship with God, if you are struggling with your um, faith and, um, and you know, the situations that you're finding yourselves finding yourselves in. You know, we as a church are a family. We are separated from the world and are called out together um, as a family of God, as a church, to help and build up one another. So if you have these struggles and you would like um, the prayers of the church, let this request be made known as we stand and sing our final hymn this morning. Thanks for listening.